All right. Well, as you know, we're in this series entitled Prayers That Made a Difference, and we're looking at people who prayed key prayers at important times that moved the hand of God in their situation that made a difference. And I hope that you have been in the Word of God and that you've been talking with God about important things that make a difference, that, uh, that you've been renewing your prayer life. We're in this, uh, prayer, this renewal season here at First Assembly where we're trying to intentionally renew our prayer life and being in the Word of God. And I hope you're responding to that. If, if we're four weeks in now and uh, if, you still don't, if you don't have a prayer life, can I tell you, what are you waiting for? Um, listen to this pastor. God wants you to have more of an experience with him than happens just here on Sunday morning. Somebody say amen to that. And you need more of the word of God than you get just here on Sunday morning. You need an everyday experience with God. So I hope that you've been praying some prayers that make a difference. You know, in the last couple of weeks here, we've been focusing on Elijah and looking at his life. We've seen that he's a person just like us. He stood in the presence of God. He heard from God. He heard the word of God. And then he prayed prayers that made a difference. He prayed earnestly and fervently. And so last week, we looked at this tremendous contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And it was really a contest between Yahweh and Baal. And we saw the futility of these prophets as they called out all day uh, to Baal and uh, to someone who was just not there. And then we saw the spectacular victory of Yahweh as fire came down from heaven and consumed the soggy sacrifice and consumed the soggy wood and even consumed the stones of the altar. And then all the people cried out, Yahweh is God! Yahweh is God! Right? They had a conversion experience. And then Elijah told King Ahab to, to go ahead and have a meal right there while he went back up the mountain uh, to pray for rain. So while the world is kind of rejoicing there and enjoying the blessings of God, the church doesn't stop praying, right? The church keeps on praying. And we saw there um, that uh, Elijah, verse 44, prayed seven times. And his servant reported first six times there was nothing. But on the seventh time, a cloud appeared over the sea. And Elijah knew that the answer was on its way. The rain was coming. And that's where we left off last week. So I want to pick it up there. First Kings chapter 18 in the second half of verse 44. All right. And we're going to end up this week looking at Elijah's prayer on Mount Horeb. So, 1 Kings 18, verse 44, it says, So Elijah said to Ahab, Hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Okay, so apparently Elijah here, he's still on Mount Carmel, and maybe he's having dessert by now, who knows. And uh, Elijah tells me, you know, go down, get off the mountain before the rain's going to stop you. And apparently Elijah knew that this was going to be a significant rain. It wasn't just going to be a drizzle or some spring showers. It was going to be significant. And so going on in verse 45, it says, Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose and the heavy rain started falling. And Ahab rode off to Jezreel. Now, why Jezreel? Why, why is he going to Jezreel? Well, Ahab had a winter capital, winter palace there in Jezreel. It's about 25 miles from Mount Carmel and about halfway from Mount Carmel all the way to the capital city of Samaria. So Ahab, he's riding back to his winter capital here. And then going on, we have this another astonishing verse in verse 46. And it says this, The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Now, what is going on here? Now, 
Some people think that, you know, this is like Ahab rode off and then the power of the Lord comes on Elijah, he tucks his cloak in and then maybe he goes another way, runs all the way to Jezreel, faster than Ahab's chariot's going. And, you know, there he is by the gate as Ahab finally gets there and he's like, hey, Ahab, what took you so long, right? And maybe, you know, maybe something like that happened, but I think it's a lot more likely that something else happened here. Because in ancient times, it was very common for kings and nobles to have runners run ahead of their chariots. And these would have been young men, uh, probably military, who were trained for that type of thing. And so they would run ahead of the chariots. They were called runners. And normally, this would take place like within a city. Like you're going from one place to another in a city. You want to make a big show of it, or you want to have a security detail around you. And so you go in your chariot with these runners ahead of you, right? Or, or maybe if you were doing that, if you were moving your whole army out to battle, the chariots would go slower. But when you wouldn't do that, is if you were on some urgent mission from, say, one city to another, maybe to bring a message from one city to another, and you needed to get there quickly because the runners would slow you down. Because after all, a chariot, the top speed, you know, 35 or 40 miles an hour, and even Usain Bolt, even for 20 or 30 yards, his top speed was less than 28 miles an hour, right? So the runners would slow you down, right? And so um, here in this verse, now Ahab is in a hurry. He wants to get to Jezreel quick before the rain stops him. He's got to get 25 miles quick so the runners wouldn't be able to keep up. And so picture this scene for a minute. I mean, try to put yourself there. The sky's growing dark. You know, the wind is starting, you know, and the rain is beginning to start. And uh, Ahab's getting his chariot ready. And the cavalry, you know, if they're there, they're coming up alongside Ahab's chariot to accompany him, right? And maybe there's foot soldiers, and they're off over here, and they're making plans to do a march there through the rain and, and join up with Ahab in the capital a little bit later, right? And so in the midst of all this, here comes the prophet Elijah. And, uh, you know, he's this probably middle-aged prophet there. And, you know, he's trained in the word of the Lord, but he's not really trained in running, right? And uh, he's not in that type of shape. He probably looks something like me, all right? And, and so here he comes up alongside um, Ahab's chariot. He starts loosening up. Right, and uh, he's stretching and uh, uh, get, get, getting ready um, there, and uh, finally looks up and he's like, "All right, ready to go." I mean, how would that have looked? I mean, that looked really, really silly, right? But off they go, and uh, says he runs ahead of Ahab's chariot all the way to Jezreel. Can you imagine what that would have looked like? As you're on the wall, you're the keeper of the gate, looking. Hey, here comes a chariot in the rain. There, hey, that looks like Ahab's chariot. And someone's going like, "Well, anyone with him? Yeah, there's cavalry with him. Any foot soldiers? No, no, he's going too fast for that." Well, wait a minute. There is this one guy. He's running ahead of the chariots, right? And he's keeping pace with the horses, right? And so off they go to Jezreel with Elijah running ahead of Ahab's chariot. That must have been quite a sight. And that brings us here to our next question about this verse. Why does Elijah go to Jezreel with Ahab at all? I mean, what, what's his purpose? What, what's he wanting to accomplish here by accompanying Ahab back to Jezreel? And, and though it doesn't specifically say it, I think it's very likely, and many believe, that Elijah is accompanying Ahab because he believes he's going to assist him in a national renewal effort. The national renewal that began on Mount Carmel. That Mount Carmel wasn't an end. That Mount Carmel was the beginning. I mean, that was the purpose, right? The, the purpose of this drought was God trying to get their attention so that they would serve him again. And the whole purpose of this contest on Mount Carmel, remember Elijah prayed, God answered me, send the fire so that the people will know that you are Yahweh and that you are turning their hearts back to you. That's the whole purpose. 
And so it makes sense that he'd accompany Ahab back to Jezreel to give spiritual guidance to this effort towards spiritual renewal. And he may have believed that something like was already happening in the southern kingdom of Judah might happen there. Because in Judah at that time, you can read about this in 2 Chronicles 16. In Judah at that time, Jehoshaphat is the king. And it says that Jehoshaphat is a godly king. He, he loved the Lord. He sought after God's commands. He followed the ways of his father, David, serving the Lord. And um, he, he didn't consult the Baals. Uh, he tore down the high places and the, and, of the false gods and the Asherah poles and all of that. And not only that, it says he instituted a program designed to teach the people God's word. He sent priests and Levites to all of these towns and all of these cities with the word of God to teach them what it means to be faithful to the Lord, of God, to, to the Lord their God, right? So uh, it's a time of spiritual renewal there in Judah. And so Elijah is probably thinking that, you know, something similar is going to happen here. And they would need to remove the altars of Baal and remove the Asherah poles and deconstruct the temple uh, to Baal in the capital city of Samaria. They'd need to remove the high places and the idols uh, in Dan and Bethel that Jeroboam had set up. And then they'd need to go town to town and teach all the people about what it means to be faithful to the Lord. I mean, there was much to do. But turning the page to the next chapter, chapter 19, something else happens instead. Something unexpected happens. Let's read it. Chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. It says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. And so Jezebel here is now threatening Elijah's life. How would you like that? Now, we don't know if she would have been able to carry this out or not. There are some who think that with all the support of the people uh, right then, uh, she wouldn't have really been able to carry that out, that uh, they would have protected him and so forth, and uh, uh, that she was really trying to intimidate him. There are others who think that, yes, absolutely, she would have carried this out and uh, because she was that bloodthirsty and that wicked of a woman. But either way, what's important is the effect that had on Elijah. Look at verse 3. It says, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. I mean, this really profoundly affected Elijah. I mean, one day he's entering the capital, you know, with hopes of a spiritual renewal that's going to take place, and the next day he's running for his life. And the big question is, I mean, what, what, what's going on here? I mean, what is the situation here as God sees it? I mean, on the one hand, is it possible that Elijah misread the situation and misread the victory on Mount Carmel and uh, was mistaken about the idea uh, that there was going to be a national revival? And, uh, and so now he, um, this misstep caused him to have to flee for his life. Or on the other hand, is it possible that Elijah is now misreading the situation? You know, that this is just a threat and that God's going to protect him and has plans for this national revival. Well, we can't be entirely sure about that. But we do know that this impacted Elijah in a tremendous way. He's afraid. He's running. And now, was it God's plan for Elijah to run? Well, I don't think so. Because by the time he gets to where he's running, we're going to see in a few minutes that God asks him twice, Elijah, what are you doing here? You know, it kind of implies that he's not really where he was supposed to be, right? 
So, so let's follow this story and see how God now graciously deals with Elijah as he's running in fear. And this is very encouraging to me, the, the idea that here he is, he's running in fear, but God graciously and mercifully deals with him. Going on, verse 3 to 4. It says, When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. All right, now picture this. Beersheba is the southernmost city in Judah. So Elijah flees south out of Israel. He goes through Judah. He goes past Jerusalem, past the temple worship there, all the way to the border of the 12 tribes of Israel, to the border of the inheritance of God, the promised land, and then continues further on past that. And I notice here it says that he left his servant there. The idea is that he, he, he's letting his servant go. He's saying, listen, there's nothing more left for you here. You can't be my servant anymore. I, I'm done. You should just stay here in Israel, get another job. And, but I'm, I'm done and I'm going on, right? And so um, verse 4, it says, He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. He says, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. I mean, Elijah is depressed here. He's had enough. He thinks he can't go on. He's tired. He's worn out. He doesn't feel like he has the energy to even go one more day. This is the prayer of depression. It's the prayer when you think everything is futile and useless. Have you ever felt that way? You know, been in a situation where you feel like, you know, my goodness, what good is it to even go on? Everything just seems futile and useless. It doesn't matter what happens. Elijah feels that way. And, and he asks God here to take his life. And look what he, he says. He says, I'm no better than my ancestors. In other words, God, I'm just human. God, God, I'm just flesh and blood. God, I'm not some superhuman, super spiritual superstar here. I, I'm not better than any of my ancestors or anything like that, God. Um, how am I supposed to face this? God, how am I supposed to deal with this? And so we hear, see here what James meant when he said that Elijah was a man who was just like us. You know, sometimes the man who runs in the power of the spirit ahead of the chariots also gets tired. Sometimes the man who hands back a, a, a young boy with joy after God raised him from the dead also gets depressed enough to wish he were dead. Sometimes the man who, who prayed fire down from heaven and rain down from heaven also prays, God sent help. Say, heaven, help me. He had weaknesses. He had struggles. He had a bad day. I mean, this is honest. This is raw. And so look at it going on in verse 5. He says, then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Now, how many of you know sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap? I, I, I'm just saying, uh, you know, sometimes stress and pressure can really wear you out physically sometimes. And sometimes the best thing you can do, sometimes even the most spiritual thing you can do is just take a nap and get some rest, right? But going on in verse 5 to 8, it says, All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Now, can I tell you, I mean, he must have been wiped out. Because how many of you, when an angel taps you on your shoulder, you know, just react by, oh, there's some bread and water, and then turn her over and go back to sleep? 
I mean, everybody else in the Bible, when the angel shows up, they're like, oh, there's an angel, I'm going to die or something. And the angel's like, don't be afraid. But here Elijah's like, oh, what, bread, water, okay, eat that. And just rolls over, goes back to sleep, right? The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. The journey's too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. And you see here how graciously, God is graciously ministering to his needs. God is being merciful and kind to him. Kind of reminds me of what it says in Psalm 103, where it said, as the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows we are how we are formed. He knows that we are dust. He knows our frailties. He knows our weaknesses. He's touched by the feelings of our infirmities. And notice here, when the angel tells him to get up and eat, he adds, for the journey is too much for you. He's got more journey coming. You know, Elijah thought that the journey's over. He said, that, that's it. Just take me right now. But God says, no, no, your journey's not over. Can I tell you, when you feel like you're done, like you've got nothing left, like there's nothing left in the tank, that's when God comes along and says to you, you know what? You may feel like you're done, but I'm not done with you. I've got more plans for you. I'm going to lift you up and I'm going to encourage you. Let me help you. Let me strengthen you. Elijah planned on dying there, but God says you've got more journey left. And, and at this point, it might be good to ask, you know, why did Elijah even bother coming this far in the first place? Now remember, I mean, he came through Judah to get there. And Judah was a good place to be spiritually, the, um, the godly king Jehoshaphat is king. Uh, he's promoting the worship of Yahweh. He's getting rid of the altars of Baal and Asherah and all those things. He's got a Mosaic Covenant education program going on. The temple worship's going on in Jerusalem. Uh, prophets of Yahweh were welcome and protected in Judah. Why not just stop right there and make a fresh start of it in Judah? Well, to answer that, we'll need to see where God leads him in the next several verses. Verses 8 and 9, he says, Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. This is where God commissioned Moses to go speak to Pharaoh. And this is where God brought the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt to meet with him, the Mount Horeb. This is where God personally appeared to them in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud and uh, dark clouds and thunder and lightning and trumpet blasts and billows of smoke. And he spoke audibly to the people of Israel and he gave them the Ten Commandments here. This is where he established the covenant with them. You know, sometimes there are some situations, some difficult situations that we get in that require you to go back to the foundations of your faith, to go back to the foundations of the covenant. For, the, for Elijah and for the people of the Old Testament, that was Mount Horeb. For believers in Jesus, it's a different mountain. It's Mount Calvary. It's the cross. If you're in a desperate situation, if you're wondering where God is, and you're wondering, you know, does God care? Does, does God love me? Does, will, will God take care of me? Does God have a plan for me? Go. Find your way back to Mount Calvary. Find your way back to the cross. And take those questions there with you. And then look at the cross. 
again. See Jesus as he willingly carries the cross for you. See Jesus as he willingly stretches out his hands and his feet for you. See Jesus as they drive the nails into his hands and his feet. See Jesus as he willingly goes there, dies there, the just for the unjust, in order to bring you to God and have your sins forgiven. See him as he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Take all your questions there, and you'll have all those questions answered. You'll renew your strength when you go back to the foundation of your covenant. Going on, verse 9, he says, And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Uh, And you know what? I love this question because uh, on the one hand, it kind of implies that, you know, Elijah is not really where he's supposed to be. This isn't really God's first plan. But at the same time, it's very relational, right? It's God meeting Elijah where he is. Because think about it for a second. I mean, God knows the answer to this question, right? I mean, whenever God asks you a question, he's not asking for information. Like, he doesn't know something that he needs you to provide the information that he's lacking, right? He knows the answer to this question, but he's seeking a conversation, a relationship. Elijah, what are you doing here? I mean, why have you come? What is it you want? What's your purpose here? Um, go, Go ahead and just talk to me. Let me, you know, tell me what's going on. You know, sometimes just voicing it to God. I mean, in prayer out loud voicing it to God is a major step in helping you get through whatever challenge you're facing. Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah replies in verse 10. He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. And so Elijah just lays it out honestly before God. God, this is what I feel. This is where I'm at. God, um, he's not trying to sound extra spiritual or super spiritual or anything like that. It's just raw and it's just honest. And going on in verse 11, it says, The Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And so this is God saying, All right, I'm going to meet with you. And by the way, there's something very familiar about this. Because this happened once before on this mountain, in this very place, right? God passed by. It happened with Moses. It says that he wanted to, to, to see God, and God said, I'm going to pass by you. And, and so on the top of this mountain, God passed by. He took his hand, put Moses in a cleft so he wouldn't see his face. And as he passed by, he took his hand away so that Moses could see him from behind. And God pronounced his name in Moses' presence. And now God is going to pass by Elijah in this very same spot. So let's see how this happens. Verse 11, it says, Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, He pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Wind, earthquake, fire, and then a gentle whisper. Now, why was God not in the wind and the earthquake and the fire before finally showing up and talking quietly with Elijah? Well, let me first tell you what it's not, okay? 
This is not a lesson in hearing the voice of God by hearing a still small voice in your heart or in your mind. Right now, I know there have been a lot of sermons preached on this, and that's kind of where everybody goes with it. Like, okay, you need to hear the still small voice of, of, of the Lord and so forth. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit indwells believers and that he moves upon us and that he uh, impresses on us the things of the Lord, the things of God, the ideas of God, the, the word of God and all of those things. And sometimes he talks to us by a gift of the Spirit, by a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom and, and speaks to us. I believe all that. But that's not what's happening here in this this verse here, when it says a gentle whisper, or some translations, a still small voice. It's not an inner voice, but here, Elijah is hearing an audible whisper that he heard with his ears. It was for him. And so why was God not in the wind, earthquake, and fire? I mean, think of it. He could have been, right? I mean, he was in those things before on Mount Carmel. The fire fell, right? God was in that, right? Then the rain and the wind blew up. God was in that, right? And then uh, when, when Moses was on this mountain, it says that the mountain shook. There was an earthquake and, and fire and, uh, and smoke and all of those kinds of things, right? And God was in that. I mean, he could have been in that. God can and sometimes does appear in the very loud and the very powerful stuff. But here, God isn't in any of those things. He shows up and is a gentle whisper. And it's as if to say that God can also move in what is quiet in what is unnoticed, in what is not so obvious, in what's unseen. You know, and it's great when fire falls, right? It's great when someone's raised from the dead. It's great when somebody is healed right in front of you, right? That's awesome, and that's amazing. But I think God also would say to us, you know, don't miss God in the quiet things of life. Don't miss God in the things that aren't so obvious. God comes and talks to him in a quiet voice. And here's how the conversation goes. Verse 13, he says, Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So, same question, same relational question. Elijah, tell me, what's going on in your life? And verse 14, Elijah gives the exact same answer. He says, replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Same honest answer, right? God, this is where I'm at. This is what I feel like. God, this is what's going on in my life. Look at God's response, verse 15. It says, the Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel, king over Aram. Also anoint Yehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elijah, Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahola to succeed you as prophet. All right, now notice a few things about God's response here. First, he, he doesn't really validate Elijah at all, right? I mean, he doesn't say, oh, you know what, you, you're right, you, you poor, poor prophet. You know, you poor, poor baby, there, there. I'll take care of that mean queen for you, all right? But at the same time, he doesn't really rebuke him or castigate him either. Right? He doesn't say, hey, you know, what's wrong with you? Hey, you, oh my goodness, you blew it. I can't believe you came here. You blew it. You ruined the whole plan. Why don't you pull your life together and just snap out of it, right? He doesn't say anything like that either. And also notice, he doesn't give Elijah what he's asking for either. He doesn't say, right, okay, Elijah, you know, you're right. 
and you're completely useless to me in this condition. So you're right. I'll just take you home to be with me right now. And maybe for the first time in Elijah's entire ministry that we know of, Elijah doesn't get the request that he's asking for. And praise God for that too, amen? I mean, aren't you glad that God doesn't always listen to some of the stupid things that we say? Right? Amen. I'm looking out. Am I the only one who ever says anything stupid? All right? You're all so holy. That's awesome. Oh, thank God he doesn't give us the stupid things that we ask for, right? Instead, he gives them an assignment. And actually, three assignments. I mean, and at first, this seems a little bit cold. When you think about it, I mean, there's no talking the issue through. There's no word of encouragement. There's no attaboy. You can do it. You know, there's nothing like that. And it might seem just a little cold or heartless. Hey, just go, go, go do my, my, my assignments here. But when you look a little bit more closely, you see some really important things that I think God communicates to Elijah in all of this. Okay, first, God is not through with him. His life still has purpose. God's got some things that he wants him to do. It may not look exactly like he thought. It might not look exactly like the revival that was happening in, in Judah, right? But God is still working through him nonetheless. There may be times where, uh, you know, things don't go in life exactly like you thought they were going to go, exactly like you planned to wish they would, but God is still working in your life nonetheless. And then second idea is this. His life is in God's hands. It's not in Jezebel's hands or Ahab's hands. His life is in God's hands. I mean, look at these assignments for a minute. I mean, these aren't any small assignments. Go and anoint new kings. Because, I mean, how do you think the current king of Damascus is going to react when he shows up there, a foreigner in Damascus, anointing someone else to be king? And how do you think Ahab and Jezebel are going to react when he shows up back in Israel and anoints someone else to be king in Israel. I mean, that would be considered treasonous. So in giving him these assignments, it's like God is also saying, or at least strongly implying, hey, I know what Jezebel's threatened, but your life is not in her hands. It's in my hands. And it's not over until I say it's over. You know, when you're at the lowest point in your life, when you feel like you've been faithful and the bottom is falling through, you know where you find yourself? The place you find yourself is in the hand of God. Your life is in his hand. And then look at the last assignment here. He says, go anoint Elisha to be the next prophet after you. And what's strongly implied here is that God is not done speaking to his people. You know, Elijah seemed to think that with the threats of Jezebel, the prophetic ministry is now coming to the end. He was the only one left speaking, and now he's done speaking, and uh, so the prophetic ministry has come to an end. God loses, the Mosaic Covenant fails, and Baal wins, and so, but God has another idea. Not only is God not done speaking through Elijah, but he wants him to train others to speak for him as well. God's plan is going to continue even after Elijah has passed from the scene. And then he says one more encouraging thing to him. Verse 18. He says, Yet I've reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. You know, many times Elijah had said publicly um, and privately, I'm the only one left. I'm the only one left uh, serving God, speaking for God. And now he's informed God twice 
that he's the only one left. Now, how many of you know that you need to be careful when you start telling God how it is? Right? I mean, because he's omniscient and he knows everything. And so, um, like Elijah and like Job, when you tell God how it is, you need to have the humility to stand back and say, okay, God's omniscient and he may come back and tell me how it really is. And here, God's telling Elijah how it really is. There are, you're not the only one left. There are 7,000 faithful people who haven't bowed down to Baal, who need to be encouraged, who need to be ministered to, right? 7,000 people, some of whom are going to start speaking for me. And in all this, you get this idea that God is not through. He's not done. He's still working. It may not look like he wanted it to look like, but God is going to continue to work his plan. Now, we don't have time here to go through everything that happened after this in Elijah's life. But I do want to skip just briefly over a few things that show how God kept on working. You know, Elijah did, in fact, go to Damascus and anoint Hazael to be the new king. He did, in fact, go to Israel and anoint Yehu to be the next king of Israel. And he anointed Elisha as prophet uh, to follow him. And, in fact, Elisha left uh, everything that he had and became Elijah's servant and began to learn the ministry of the Lord. And so much began to happen, but much more happened as well. In the next chapter, chapter 20, it says, Ben-Hadad, still king in Syria, still king in Damascus, he attacked Samaria and King Ahab. In the middle of all this, it says this. It says, Meanwhile, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, this is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? And he goes on to give him a prophecy there. But, but hold on just a minute. A prophet came to Ahab, and it's not Elijah. And it's not Elisha. It's some other prophet of Yahweh prophesying in his name in Israel. And prophesying that to the king that God is going to bring judgment on Ben-Hadad. And then a year later, Ben-Hadad attacks again, and the same prophet is back again, Proclaiming the word of the Lord. And then during that battle, another prophet shows up. And he wants to confront Ahab. And so it says in verse 35, By the word of the Lord, watch this. By the the word of the Lord, one of the company of the prophets said to his companion, Strike me with your weapon. And he goes on to prophesy there. But wait a minute. One of the company of the prophets? I mean, there's a company of prophets now? A group of prophets going around speaking in the name of Yahweh. I mean, where did they come from? I thought Elijah, he's the only one left. The only one speaking. But now, a year later, we have a company of prophets speaking in the name of Yahweh. And then a little later in the next chapter, we have this rather sordid story in which Ahab is coveting the vineyard of a guy named uh, Naboth. And Ahab's depressed because Naboth won't sell him this vineyard. And Jezebel hears about it, and he arranges for Naboth to be falsely accused and executed. And then when Ahab goes to take take possession of this vineyard, it says this. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, and he goes on, talks to him, and he goes down there. Elijah, uh, uh, Ahab sees him and says, So have you found me, my enemy? And Elijah says, I have found you. And Elijah goes on to tell him exactly what the Lord is thinking of this whole situation, what he thinks of him, what the Lord is thinking of Jezebel as well. And wait a minute, Elijah is now prophesying to the king again? I thought he was done. I thought he wanted God to just take his life, right? But now here, he's prophesying again. And where's the fear? Where's the fear of Jezebel? 
Where, where's the fear of Ahab? It's gone. He's ministering again in the power of the Lord. Chapter 22, there's another war between Israel and Damascus. And now another prophet named Micah has shown up. And he's prophesying in the name of Yahweh. And Elijah himself continues prophesying throughout Ahab's reign and the reign of his son. All the way until the day that he's taken up to heaven in God's heavenly chariots. And by then, there are companies of prophets that have sprung up in various cities throughout the land, including Bethel and Jericho. And the word of the Lord is being proclaimed by God's faithful prophets. You know, in the end, whether it's this life or in the next, when the ultimate kingdom of God is set up, God is going to have the last say. His word endures forever. And his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. You know, and those who fight against him now, it may seem like they succeed for a while, but in the end, they will ultimately fail. And, and those who walk in faith and trust in submission to him now, you know, sometimes it seems like they're downtrodden or persecuted for a time, but in the end, they will be lifted up and rewarded. Amen. So, all right, let's stop there for today. And uh, would you bow with me in prayer? It's going to end this service. And uh, as we're getting ready to pray, I just kind of want to ask you, how many of you would say to me, either you're here or even if you're at home watching online, you'd say to me, you know, Pastor Paul, I've been feeling a little bit like Elijah. I've been facing some difficult stuff. It seems like the stuff we're facing is long and difficult and things go from bad to worse. And I don't know where God is and I don't know what he's doing. Sometimes I feel like giving up. Can I just see your hand where you are? I just want to pray for you and I'm going to call you out or anything. Thank you. And even at home, if you're watching, you know, I want to pray for you as well. You need to go back like Elijah did. Go back to the foundations of your faith. Go back to the cross. Father, God, you see all of those who lifted their hands, both here, God, and at home. And God, God, I pray for them in the name of Jesus. God, help us all, God, in the difficult times, to continue to go back to the cross, to see the cross again, to see the foundations of the new covenant, to see the foundations of of our faith. Encourage your people. God, strengthen your people like you strengthened Elijah, like you were merciful, God, with Elijah and minister to him. Minister to strengthen and encourage and lift up your people and continue to speak through your faithful people. All right, let me ask you just one more question. If you're here and you'd say to me or you're watching online and you say to me, you know, Pastor Paul, I've never really been to the cross. You know, I see the things that are happening in the world, and some of those things, they're, they're, they're some frightful things sometimes. And, and you say, you know what? I don't really have a relationship with God. I've never been to the cross. And, uh, but today, I see I need Jesus in my life. And uh, I, I believe that he died for me on the cross and rose again from the dead. And I want to give my life to him. I want to come to him in humility and repentance. Um, and that's where you're at. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray a short prayer here. I'm going to ask everybody here and at home also to follow me in this prayer. It's like Carmel. It's a place of beginning, not a place of ending, just a place of beginning for a life lived in a walk of faith with the Lord Jesus. Would you pray this after me? Dear Heavenly Father, I'm coming to you today. I confess I can't save myself. I'm a sinner. But I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. 
to pay for my sins. And I believe he rose again from the grave. Jesus, please be my Lord, be my Savior, my Redeemer. Help me walk with you in faith every day of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. My friends, can I tell you, if you've done that for the first time, or maybe you're coming back to God after being away from him, God's done what you've asked him to do. And uh, there's just a couple things you need to do to grow in your relationship now. Get in the Word of God every day. If you don't have one, we'll get one for you. Or download YouVersion Bible uh, to your phone and get in the Word of God every day. Pray a little bit every day, whether you're a new believer or whether you've been walking with him many, many years. Get in the Word of God. Hear from God in his Word and hear from him in prayer. And you're going to be surprised how God is speaking to you and walking with you. Now, will you all just bow with me one more time as we close this service in prayer? God, we just thank you for the example of the prophet Elijah in your word. God, thank you that you want to hear from us. God, help us like Elijah. Be the kind of people who stand because, uh, before you and hear you, God, and hear your word. Uh, God, help us like Elijah. Be people who faithfully represent you to our world. God, help us like Elijah. Be people who pray earnestly and fervently. God, help us like Elijah when we're at the lowest point in our lives, God, to continue to seek you, to go back to the foundation of our faith and be encouraged when we find you there. God, in the power of the Spirit, may we pray powerful and effective prayers this week and beyond. For it's in the name of the Lord Jesus we pray. And everyone said, amen, amen. All right, God bless you so much. Have a great week uh, with Jesus in his name, with full of the grace of Jesus. Amen.